S.I. McMillan, who wrote the book, None of These Diseases, included a story of a high school girl that had her heart set on a particular college, and so she got an application for it and was sure this is the place for me. But her heart sank when she read the question, are you a leader? Now, she was both honest and very conscientious, so she wrote simply, no, and returned the application expecting that she would be rejected from the school. She got a letter from them a few weeks later, opened it, and to her shock, it said, Dear Applicant, a study of the application forms reveals that this year our college will have 1,452 new leaders. We are accepting you because we feel it is imperative that they have at least one follower. <laughs> now, our passage today, which we'll read in just a moment, uh, talks about leadership. It addresses leaders. Actually, the word that's used there is elders. But uh, there is a range of meaning in Greek. The same word elder is used here to refer to leaders in the local church, uh, leaders like the Pharisees who weren't doing such a great job in the days of Jesus. And even in the story of the uh, prodigal son, remember the elder brother? Same word refers to the older brother. So... Uh, it, it does have a range, and the reason I point that out, that as I speak about this today, I'm not just thinking of the elders in the church, like Jared, or John, or Bo, or Richard, or Mark, but also deacons, and uh, other staff members, like Mike, and people who lead in a, in a variety of places, um, a, a number of areas of ministries that are, we are, involve ourselves in in the life of the church need leaders. And you may be called to be a leader at some point. I'm talking about leaders in the home. Moms and dads are leaders. And I think there are a lot of very sound principles that are encased in these four short verses that we're going to look at for the next several minutes that will help you as you lead wherever you are, whoever you are. So 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, let's look at this. And in fact, as long as we have it up here on, on the uh, uh, screens, let's, let's read this together out loud. Mark got us started with the Lord's Prayer. Ready? So, I exhort the leaders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, Father, we have heard your holy word. Help us to take it seriously, and we pray that the Holy Spirit might work in our hearts and in our minds to grasp what you would say to us. How we thank you for your Spirit. Father, how we thank you for your Son, and how we thank you that we are a part of your family. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, I have a bulletin insert today. It's, it's a little simpler. I want to talk about leading and leading well. 
The first point that I, I want to emphasize here is that we are to lead, lead like a shepherd. That's what we're to do. I want you to think like a shepherd. Any shepherds out there? I, I know the decks have raised sheep. Um, uh, I appreciate that. But for a living, and, and in the way it was done in the days of Jesus, where it was like uh, small businesses, that shepherds had a flock, and that was their livelihood, and they cared for them, and, and uh, it was in, incredibly important to them. The Bible talks about shepherds. I think about Jesus referring to himself as a shepherd. John 10, verse 11, he said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And, and that would be a good shepherd, wouldn't it? To be willing to die for your sheep. He said this to the disciples before they knew they were his flock and that he literally would lay down his life for them. But I also think of a passage in the scripture that uh, a number of you have memorized. There are people outside the bounds of the church that are familiar with this passage. And uh, you might want to keep a finger in your Bible, if you have it open, to 1 Peter chapter 5, and flip over to the Old Testament to Psalm 23. Now, the 23rd Psalm is a well-known psalm. It talks a lot about shepherding, and I think it's going to help us here quite a deal. This is a, I'm using a more contemporary uh, translation of the Bible than the King James. Most of us, if we've memorized the, the uh, 23rd Psalm, we've memorized it in King James. I know I did. I sometimes get translation gridlock when I try to say it and, want, and the words aren't working because the brain wants to go back. And uh, so let me, let me just read through this as well. If you've turned back to it, try to give you enough time to get there. Uh, here we go. Uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Great text. What does the shepherd do? I think the shepherd, thinking in terms of biblical terms and example, does three basic things. The shepherd feeds the sheep, or you might say cares for the sheep. He leads the sheep, and he protects the sheep. These are all three important things. Feeds, leads, protects. For the shepherd, the shepherd is always saying, it's all about them. It's not about me. I'm supposed to, as a shepherd, I'm supposed to give my attention to the sheep, to the flock. Jesus talked about this uh, again in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But let me, he keeps talking. I didn't read this before, but Jesus keeps speaking. And he says, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. For the, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. If those are my sheep, I love them, and I'm taking care of them. They're extremely important to me. 
Now, if I was in, in Bible times, if I was wealthy and I could afford to have big flocks and several flocks, I would hire someone to come in and be a hired hand. That hired hand is not going to love those sheep the way I would if I was out there in the field taking care of them day by day. And so it's always about the sheep. When it talks about, when I talk about feeding, I think that passage that says, or that verse that says, I have all that I need, or in King James, it's I shall not want. But we don't talk that way much anymore. You're visiting a friend, uh, and you're staying overnight, and they feed you a nice meal in the evening, and they take you, this will be your room, and here's your bed, and there's pillows there, and this is the bathroom you'll use, and here are clean towels. Uh, everything okay? You probably would not say, I shall not want. <laughs> You're probably going to say something like, well, thanks, I got everything I need. That's what this is talking about. And so the shepherd wants to give the sheep everything that they need. When I read in the 23rd Psalm about paths of righteousness, what, what is a path of righteousness? Is, is that like a sidewalk that glows in the dark? Or maybe has little statues of angels next to it? I, no. All it means is it's a good path. It's a righteous path. It's a path on which you follow it, it's going to turn out okay. It's going to be good. Not for me as a shepherd. It's going to be good for the sheep because it's going to go somewhere that they need to go. A path of righteousness, for example, might be the sheep are out feeding in a field. They've exhausted the grass that they're grazing on or clover or whatever it is. And it's time to go somewhere else to find a new place to feed. It's a righteous path the shepherd takes that leads them to the place they need to be. It's as simple as that, where there's good grazing. Because, as I've said before, the good shepherd focuses on the sheep not on himself. It's interesting in our country what happens when people who have a constituency from all over the United States, both conservative and liberal, come to this city that's not too far down the road from here, and all of a sudden, they forget about those people and they start thinking about themselves. My father-in-law used to say, the problem with D.C., they're down there breathing the rarefied air over the Potomac. And mentalities can change. And uh, there's some examples, quite a few examples, in fact, of people who are leading, but they're thinking about themselves. They're thinking about their political careers more than they're thinking about the people that they're supposed to be caring for one of the biggest things perhaps you've heard of uh, a few years back was a $223 million earmark, and that's back when a million dollars meant something, right? For a bridge in Alaska that became known as the Bridge to Nowhere. Uh, this proposal, about a quarter of a billion dollars, was for construction of a bridge that would connect the town of Ketchikan, <coughs> excuse me, Ketchikan, Alaska, to to the airport on uh, where the airport was to the island of Gravina, uh, a population of only 50 people. Ketchikan was a big city, 9,000, and so uh, the people in D.C. decided, in their infinite wisdom, to build a 223 or give a 223 million dollar earmark for this bridge. It turned out because it was going over a well-used uh, sea corridor, it was going to have to be higher than the Brooklyn Bridge. It was going to be three quarters of the length of the Golden Gate Bridge, and it was going to be more like four million dollars. But that was a couple decades ago. And uh, that was stopped, and the bridge to nowhere went nowhere. And uh, it was just a waste. Or come a little closer to home, to our neighboring state of West Virginia, and uh, 
the good Senator Robert Byrd, who uh, served uh, in the Senate for uh, quite a few years, 51, I think, in the Senate, and several years in the House before that, had a building named after him. In fact, if someone had the prestige uh, that he had, you might think he might have more than one building. <clears throat> Two, three, four. Well, I looked it up the other day. Robert Byrd has 63 buildings named after him in the state of West Virginia. Now, that doesn't make you rich, but it does show a desire to have prestige and power. I didn't mention his wife, who has another about eight buildings named after her, Emma. But this happens, and it happens over and over again. We do the same thing in the church. <clears throat> we get it wrong in the church. I've been a pastor in my life, and I've seen it. I've been aware of it. I've been warned about it. But the good shepherd makes me lie down in green pastures. Do you catch the operative verb there? Makes me. Makes me. You make someone who doesn't really want to do something, who doesn't see the need of it, to do something that's good for them. Boy, you see this in parenting. So often. I remember, as a parent, my firstborn child, how dear he is and was then, going to the doctor to receive a shot and seeing him run out of the doctor's office, waving his arms and screaming because he was afraid of a needle and having to hold him in my arms so he wouldn't uh, be taken off from the doctor to get a shot. We have to do this. Even the best of us, <clears throat> there was a friend of mine in a church I served in Wisconsin. His name was Dave Allen. And Dave was a, he was a great guy. He was a really cool guy. And he had a son who needed to go to a high school football game. And so Dave was taking his son to the football game. And as they approached the gate to go into the stadium, he said, Dad, uh, it's okay. You can let me out here. He didn't want anybody to see his father dropping him off at the game. And dads, it doesn't matter how cool you are. You're never going to be cool enough. And I would even add to that that um, even in the life of the church and in Christian education, you might be the greatest communicator there is, but there'll come a time when you're going to need some help. And that's why I'm, I'm glad to know that uh, Providence has hired someone to come to work as a youth pastor and, and to help moms and dads out with their kids. Excuse me. But we see it a lot. Moms, let me ask you a question. Who here, a mother who's here today, had a grade school son who said, Mom, it looks like it might rain today. Could I please wear my galoshes? And then his older brother uh, pipes in and says, Yeah, Mom, could I have an umbrella to carry to school with me? It, it ain't going to happen. That's, we sometimes have to make those that we're shepherding to lie down in green pastures. You've got to do it. You've got to make people do things sometimes that they don't want to do to be a good leader, to be a good shepherd. This psalm also says, He leads me beside still water. That's so picturesque. Can't you just imagine yourself Seeing out in the green pasture and looking at the, the brook going uh, slowly going by. That's not what this is talking about. The reason it's in here is that because sheep are dumb. And, and it's kind of a, it's interesting to me that the Bible refers to us as sheep. And I, and I think, hmm, what are, you know, is, there, is the Lord trying to tell us something in just that? Sheep are afraid of running water. They won't go near the running water. And uh, they want still water, but they have to drink. 
And so the shepherd had to find still water for them so they could, the, the flock could go up and drink, or he would have to dam off a portion of a, of a more lively stream or river so that the water would come in and pool and they could drink there. Probably the water was cleaner and healthier in the moving water, but they wouldn't drink that. They needed to drink from still water, and the good shepherd would provide that for them. We see in this passage that it, it talks about, and I'm, Psalm 23, I'm still talking about, uh, going through the valley of the shadow of death. And perhaps that's why so many people outside the church know this passage, the 23rd Psalm, because you hear it at funerals a lot. But this is just, this is a, a shadow of death. It's a scary passage. There might be sheer walls on either side of a narrow path that you have to go through, and it could blot out the sun, and it can be dark in there and not, uh, and not feel real good. But you have to go through that because that too can be a good path to get you where the good shepherd wants you to go. It can be a righteous path going through there. You can't climb up sheer cliffs, but you can zigzag back around as you're climbing to higher ground. Remember, we're in, we're in the Middle East, and we're talking about going outside, and there are mountainous areas where the sheep are going to feed. This was before the time that Purina was making sheep chow. I just want you to know that. So you had to take them to places where they could eat and graze. Dark places, scary places. Do you remember where you were at and what you were doing when you found out the news of 9-11? I do. I can remember it very clearly in my mind. Do you all know where our current president at that time, do you know where he was when he found out about 9-11? I know. He was in Sarasota, Florida, in an elementary school, reading one of these large picture books to a group of elementary school kids. And an aide came over and whispered in his ear, and he kept turning the pages and reading to the kids. He put the book down, and then he politely, calmly left the room. Gone on Air Force One, they, they couldn't even land the plan. The plane, they didn't know what was happening. They knew that D.C., the Pentagon, had, had been attacked, and they didn't know if there was an imminent attack on the White House. They didn't know what was going on. But planes were grounded, and Air Force One was up there where the president would be safe. It was a scary time. And the leader of our country at that time knew things that perhaps we didn't know. Some things we'd find out later, perhaps not. I understand that each day the president gets a daily briefing, and this daily brief is... This is like super top secret stuff that there's no way that an average guy like me could ever know what's on there. And the president receives this news and he knows things. He knows things that can be scary things, dark things. But you know what? He doesn't have to talk and he shouldn't talk about them. He goes on about his business and it's interesting to me, what does the president do? He goes around to ceremonies, in, in Bush's case, back in 2001, he was reading a book to a group of elementary age kids, and the president does all these kind of mundane things for the people, even though there are things that he knows about that he can't be real open and vulnerable about. Sometimes when you're a leader, it's like that for you too. There's things that you know of, you're a pastor of a church, and you can't just go blabbing these things. You have to know them, and there's a certain weight there that you carry as you go about doing what's best for your flock. And this is true with all leaders, for elders and deacons and parents in the house, in the home. There is a certain frustration level that grows out of that, don't you ever just know, want to know what's going on? 
And sometimes it's best if you just don't know what's going on. And the good shepherd, the good leader, has to deal with that and, and make sure he's doing what's best for the flock that he's leading. Now, to take it strictly in terms of the life of the church, the pastor and the elders of the church have to know what's best for the people, the people that they're leading. And there's an, there's an old saying in poker, you play the cards you're dealt. You don't get an ideal flock of people in a congregation. Sorry, not, I don't mean to insult anybody. But we're not perfect. And yet Jared and the other elders have to deal with us as best they can to move us along to a place that is good for us. You know, I, I have to chuckle inwardly because to say poker from the pulpit or talk about cards, the church I grew up in, playing cards was a serious sin. Now, I never figured this out as a kid because you, you could play Uno, and that wasn't evil. And yet, if you played a game with cards that could be used for poker, that was a sin. That was serious stuff. Here's what happened in our church. The pastor was leading the, a men's, it was a Sunday school class for the, for the adult men. And he's teaching in this class. And um, we didn't have elders, we just had deacons in this church. And one, the head deacon, his last name was Griffin. And he was an elderly uh, gentleman, good guy. Everybody loved him. They called him Griff, Old Griff, his, for Griffin, his last name. And so the pastor was winding up his class, and he stopped, and he looked down, and he saw uh, the head of the deacon board, Old Griff, sound asleep in the front row. I mean, his head was down, his mouth was open. You know, you get the drool come out of the corner of your mouth. It was, he was under. And so he lifted up his voice and said, well, men, it's time to, to uh, close in prayer. Griff? And he startles. He said, will you lead? Huh? Huh? What? Griff, will you lead? And he goes, Oh, I can't lead. I just dealt. <laughs> Man, was he in trouble. But the pastor loved Griff. He loved his flock. And he, he worked with the flock that he had, maybe not with the flock that he wanted to have. And, and that's the way it is in the life of the church. We deal with the reality of who we are. And sometimes we get frustrated with one another. Do, do any of you ever play at home this game? Well, why don't they do this? Why don't they do that? And my wife and I look at each other and we say, why can't everybody be just like us? And of course we're joking when we say that. But, and, and th there are warnings and there are serious things in scripture along the lines of discipline. We were talking about discipline this morning in our Sunday school class. I want to read to you Titus 3, 10 and 11. Titus 3, 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, you ready for this? Have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. And there are situations where a pastor, an elder board, elders in the church have to take some real serious action. And I want to tell you it's not fun. I think the hardest thing I've ever done in my life as a pastor over several decades was when, and I'm not going to get into the details, but a man in the church committed an open, adulterous relationship that was just so public and in the face of everybody, and he was totally unrepentant. We did just what the scriptures indicate to do, to go individually to him and then with two or three others, and he refused to repent, 
and we had to, to put it bluntly, we had to kick him out of the church. And, and you know, I, I was sick. I was sick over it. I was not happy. But sometimes that can get there because we can get to that point because you can't allow one unhealthy sheep to threaten the whole flock. Number two, we lead like a shepherd, but we lead eagerly. If you're in a place of leadership, be eager to lead. E not eager to boss people around, eager to serve people. Because that's what a shepherd does, he serves. Now, as leaders, you shouldn't complain. Now, I know, I, over the years, I've joked about it a lot. People say, well, what's it like being a pastor? And I say, well, it's a great job except for all those people. Uh, and, uh, but it, it, that's the way it is. I used to have a sign in my office that said, all people who enter this office give me joy. And then a smaller type below it said, some when they come, others when they go. My wife made me take that down. <laughs> I was going to give one to you, Mike. Would your wife? Yeah, she wouldn't let you have it either. Okay, never mind. One pastor I talked to said that his congregation would be the first ones at the rapture. They would be the first ones in the air. And I thought he was bragging until he said, no, Lanny, haven't you read the scripture that says the dead in Christ will rise first? God's frozen chosen. Well, if you can't be eager to serve, then you need to ask yourself a question, should I be leading? Because a, a shepherd is a servant. Now, last time I preached, I talked about an old friend of mine, a farmer, dairy farmer named Bernie. Told you, if you were here, he, I told you the story about how he came to faith in Christ by a seed and feed salesman that came around and gave him a Bible and so forth. Well, I went, out, I went out to visit Bernie one day and knocked on the door of his house, and Rhonda, his wife, said, oh, Bernie's out in the barn. So I went out, it was mid-morning, and the, the cows that were out in the field grazing, and uh, uh, Bernie was on his bobcat. If you don't know what a bobcat is, it's a little skid steer. It's got a, a, a scoop on the front. You can scoop stuff up in it. And he was going up and down and cleaning out the stalls, in the row, in the barn of, I'll just put it this way, things on the floor where the cows had been previously. And he was way down at the other end of the barn, and I watched him down there for a while, and as he turned around, he saw me, and he waved, and he, he came down uh, to greet me, and there he was with his bobcat, and the, and the scoop on the front was full. And I'm a city boy. I, don't, I hadn't seen this kind of thing. Listen, I knew the words. I'd heard those words before. I'd heard those words used as nouns, verbs, adverbs, adjectives. I mean, I, I knew what it was. I just hadn't seen it in that kind of uh, quantity before. And I started talking to Bernie. I saw he was, he was scooping it up. He had some on his boots and on his, his overalls. He had, he'd even gotten splattered, some on his face, and there was a, a spot on one of his glasses. And Bernie came up, as he always did, and my wife will confirm this, just grinning and happy to see you. And I talked with him and asked him what he, I said, Bernie, how often do you have to do this? And he grinned. He said, I do it every day. And I go, really? Man, that stuff smells. He said, yeah. But, uh, and, and then he shared a saying with me. He shared with me four words that I've never forgotten. And I hope you'll remember if you are called to lead. He said, pastor, no manure, no milk. If you're going to lead, if you're going to do something, you're going to have messes. And that's just the way it is. You're going to have messes in the church because people are kind of like you and me. We get in trouble, we mess up, we make a mess, and sometimes things have to be cleaned up. Uh, I'm wondering how many things Jared's going to have to clean up when he gets back from things he's heard me preaching to you, but that, that's another story. So, if, 
If you lead, you have to clean up, is the moral of that story. Do you want to be an elder in the church? Apparently somebody does, from what Mark was saying. Uh, if you want to be an elder, you've got to be able to serve. If you want to be an elder so you can boss people around, it ain't going to work. It's, it's true in the home, too. To the parents, especially to dads, Colossians, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. It happens. That's where you're, you're, you're working with. you got the real and you have the ideal. And you want your kids to be the ideal. But they're not. They're the real. And you got to deal with what you got. And you can't, you got to choose. You're going to love your kids or you're going to love the ideal. Come on. What are you going to do? You love the people that you're leading. You love your family. Um, my son, a few years back, worked for a business. I love this business. It's called, it was called Great America. It was founded by an immigrant, Tony Golobic. Uh, actually, Anton was his given name, Eastern European guy, immigrated to the United States. This, this is like the American dream. This guy, he comes through, he immigrates, he goes to school, he completes his education, he works hard, he starts a business. It's, it's a financial business and a finance, so they, I won't go into the detail, but I'll just say it's a, it was a finance business. And uh, he, he moved it from the east out to Cedar Rapids, Iowa. You know why? Because he loved America and he wanted to be in the middle of America. And he named his company Great America. He loves our country. And he's still there and he's still working. And his com company is, I just looked it up this week, they're still going and growing. When my son was there, there were about 400 employees. And uh, they would go quarter to quarter. And when they had a good quarter, the employees would all get a bonus in their check. He shared the wealth. But one day, it was an interesting thing. On top of all the bonuses, things had been going well, and he loved his people. And so Tony Golubic was going around, and at that time, about 400 employees. He didn't know everybody personally. He was going around to every employee, he did this to my son, shook hands with him, and gave him a $100 bill, and said, thank you for working with us. You make our company great. Now. I don't know if you were an employee of that business, if that would make an impression on you. It went on me. In fact, I wasn't even there. My son wasn't. It still made an impression on me. He loved his people, and he loved to lead, and he did a good job. So lead eagerly as you lead. And then number three, lead by example. Shepherds lead their sheep. They don't drive their sheep. You know, in the American West, with a herd of cattle, you drive the cattle. That's not the way it works with sheep. The shepherd would lead his sheep. And I heard a story about a tour in the Holy Land. And they're going along, and the, and the tour guide had, been, had mentioned this principle that uh, shepherds lead their sheep. And the, looking out the window, a guy in the back of the bus saw a guy out there in, in the Mideastern garb with the flowing robe and the, the hat came, coming down and covering the neck and ears and so on. He had a whip of some sort, and he's driving the sheep. And the guy yells out from the back of the bus, hey, tour guide, I thought you said that the, 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 the shepherd leads the sheep, doesn't drive the sheep. He said, look at this guy. And, they, and he made the bus stop, and he opened the door, and he, the tour guide, and he looked out, and he came back in and shut the door, and he started laughing. He was laughing hysterically. And he said, that's not the shepherd. That's the butcher. <laughs> I've heard that Dwight D. Eisenhower, both as a general uh, in the World War II European uh, theater and also as, later as a president, always had a piece of string with him. He put it on his desk. And people would ask him about the string, and he would say, see this? If I take this in, I can lead this string all wherever I want it to go. But if I push the string at the other end, it's just a jumbled mess when I'm done with it. 
big difference between pushing and driving someone or just simply leading them. The best way to lead is to be an example. Be a great, if you want to be a good leader, you want to be a good shepherd, be a good example to your flock, to those that you're leading. Uh, Lawrence Richards, the Christian education guy, he's written several books, made this statement, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. We learn more by observing people than we do listening to their words. And I have to tell you something. Christian, the best thing you can do in, a home, in home life, mom, dad, be a godly woman, be a godly man, and you will be the kind of example that will bring your children, even though they're not up at the ideal, but you'll bring them along the way God wants them to come. Be the best you can be. Be an example to your people. Doesn't always turn out that maybe the way we think or want it to turn out, but God wants you to turn out the way he wants you to turn out. So lead by example. And then the last point is simply this. Lead with God's perspective. Now, leaders will be rewarded. And because this is true, we have to be slow in evaluation. We need to look down the line for the long term. We're not like that in our, in, in our society. Wasn't it a wonderful thing when they, somebody invited, invented the microwave and you could warm up your cup of coffee in a minute or less? You know what I do now? I put my coffee in there, put it on for a minute, and I'm sitting there going, I can hardly wait for the minute. I'm in a hurry. I want things to happen now. And that's the way it is sometimes for us as leaders. But it won't work that way. We have to have the long term in mind. We want to slap a number on something and measure it right now, right this minute. We want to be able to compare it to somebody else. You know, pastors do this. They will compare the size, the attendance of their congregation. And I've seen churches build as the second largest, the fifth largest in the United States. And if they don't have a big attendance, they, they might boast about the number of members, or boast about the number of uh, baptisms, uh, or the, you know, they'll find something to brag about. I heard of one pastor that was actually bragging about the size of his parking lot. We've got the biggest parking lot in the tri-state area. And the guy that told me about that was a pastor who really was impressed by that guy. I don't think God is that concerned with how big your parking lot is. You might need to expand it. Fine, do what you need to do. But that's not what we're supposed to be doing as leaders. We're not supposed to be trying to measure everything. There's a big difference between an avalanche and a glacier. I've never been in an avalanche. I've never seen an avalanche. I have seen films about uh, or of avalanches. And I'm told this, that there's an avalanche that can be powerful, it can be frightening, it can be destructive. But you come back in 10 years, and you probably won't even be able to tell that there, where that avalanche was. A glacier, on the other hand, you come back and look at a glacier 10 years later, you can't even tell that it's moved. We talk about things moving at a glacial rate. But over the years, and hundreds of years, or thousands of years, what does a glacier do? Well, it makes things like Yellowstone and Yosemite. It does incredible stuff. But it's the long term that we're looking at. We're looking at the long haul. We should also be thinking in terms of people, number of people's lives that we've affected. I, I love preaching and I love 
sermons, and I've got several books on my shelf by one of the greatest preachers um, I know of. His name is Frank Borham. I'm guessing probably nobody here has ever heard of Frank Borham. If you haven't, come up to me after the service. We'll tell stories. He pastored two churches in his life. He did a lot of writing and collections of sermons, but he pastored two churches. One was in Dunedin, New Zealand, and the other one was in Hobart, Tasmania. Anybody here from Hobart? Never heard of these places. He was kind of a nobody. No one knew him, but I love his sermons, and they've affected me in a positive way by my reading them. We don't always see what happens, is my point. And God is working. Hey, i got to tell you, I'm of an age that I look back and sometimes I get, I get discouraged. I can be melancholy at times and I wonder, has my life, has it really ever meant anything at all? The years that I've spent as a pastor, I, I, don't, I don't know. Never pastored any big churches. Never written any books. Although I did threaten to publish a book titled Things I've Stolen from Other Thieves. But that didn't happen. But I think about the church I grew up in, and I think of three men. Henry Brazmer, Carl Richardson, and Frank Hewitt, Jr. I think about Henry... I was probably about eight years old at the time, grade school kid. And I remember one Sunday we came into the classroom. It was all boys. And on the table where we normally sat and we had our little Bibles open and we read the Bible verses, there were these wooden blocks built up. And he said, guys, today we're talking about Jericho. Joshua and Jericho. And all these building blocks on this table piled way up there. And he said, here, and he handed out these things. You know these little horns you blow at birthday parties, little cheap things? Well, he gave us all one, and he said, guys, this is what we're going to do. We're going to march around this table seven times, and when we all get around seven times, we're all going to blow our horns. Okay, Johnny, you go first. And we start counting, one, two. We get up, and everybody goes around the seventh time. Okay, boys, blow your horns. And we blew our horns, and what we didn't know is that Henry had a, some kind of a contraption underneath the table that would come up through and poke those blocks, and he hit it with his foot, and the whole city fell down. And we were probably going on chattering like little birds to our parents all afternoon. And you know what? It's been a couple years since I was eight years old, <laughs> and I can remember that to this day. I was so impressed. Then there was Carl Richardson. He was also a Sunday school teacher. And Carl used to faithfully be there on Sunday mornings. And on one Friday night of the month, every month during the school year, he would take us out and we would go. Usually it was roller skating. It might be bowling. But then we would all come back to his house. And his wife, Jeannie, would have prepared... Uh, tacos, and we all ate tacos until we were about ready to, well, we were ready to eat no more tacos for a while. And it was great. I thought, you know, he didn't have to do that. That wasn't in the job description. You know why he, I know why he did that. He loved us. He cared for us. He wanted to, us to do well. And then I think when I was in high school, Frank Hewitt Jr., Frank was a big guy, well over six feet and probably well over 300 pounds. And he had, he had hands, he had the biggest fingers. He had hands like baseball gloves. I always admired that for some reason. I thought that was cool. Big guy. And he would sit there and he would page through this Bible. And, and he would read to us. And he would read to us about Jesus. And you, you could look at Frank and you could see the tears in his eyes watering up. Because he loved Jesus so much. This big guy. And he loved us boys. 
and we loved him. And I think we loved Jesus better because of him. Henry, Carl, Frank. I don't know. We were so stupid as kids. We never said thank you, probably. I don't know a thing about them. I don't know what they did for a living. I don't know their family member. I'm just, you know, because that's like a lot of us. It was all about me. And now I look back and I think, you know, the Lord, and I'm sure they've all gone on to glory. And I'm sure the Lord has rewarded them richly because they were servant leaders that loved their little flocks and poured their lives into us. And when they got to heaven and someone asked them what they did, they probably just said, well, I had this group of Sunday school boys and just loved them. Did the best I could. And I think maybe there's someone someday who will say, you know, that Lanny Penwell guy, I, I think he really loved me or my family or my kids. And I appreciate that. And maybe I'll find out about it someday. Maybe I won't. I don't know. But it's enough to keep me going. It's enough to make me hang in there. So, lead, don't push. Do it eagerly. Do it joyfully. Be glad as you're doing it. Don't complain. Don't grouse about it. Yeah, we're not perfect. That's all right. Be an example. Be a godly woman. Be a godly man. And then do it with God's perspective. It's the long haul. You may do this all your life, and, and you get to the end of your life, and you go, so what? What have I accomplished? Well, you don't know what you've accomplished is the answer. But you might have accomplished a bunch. And if you have done it eagerly and as an example, I guarantee you this, you've, you've done it as unto the Lord and he will reward you. There's no doubt in my mind about that. So where he's called you, lead like a shepherd. Father, thank you for loving us so much and caring for us so much. I thank you for our leaders. I thank you for guys who are like John and Laughlin are getting ready to maybe step up and serve in the church in the leadership position. And I, I pray that your blessing would be upon them, Lord. And I know if, as you give us godly leaders, your blessing through them will be on us. So help us to be good followers, cheerful and loving followers, appreciative followers. Help us to make their jobs easier, not harder. And may we be full of joy, the joy of the Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.